Ugly double. Grab your <laughs> and good morning to you, Judith. Good morning to the listeners out there. It is Wednesday breakfast here on 3CR. And good morning, Patty, and to everyone who's gotten up early to listen in to Wednesday breakfast. Welcome. Great to have your company this morning. Big time. Thank you to Earth Matters, the program that just played before us. If you were extra early bird this morning, they were playing a lovely program. If you want to catch them later on in a slot, they air on Monday from 6.30 till 7 PM. Yeah. We're heading for a top of 30 degrees today. It's going to be warm. Yes, Last day of is. summer. You. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize that. Oh, it well, is. Well, 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 get out, celebrate. Oh, no. <laughs> Enjoy it while you can. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. It'll swing around to 30 again in no time. Yes, of course. Of yeah. course. And it was very beautiful this morning because there's quite a lot of cloud in the sky before it dispersed and it was picking up the sunrise. So, uh, you know, if you were up early, it, it was worth getting up. Oh, you picked up a nice color of sunrise, did you? I did, I did. Oh, beautiful. Well, today on the show, we've got a packed show. Yes, as always. And I I don't know if anyone um, noticed there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald on Saturday about uh, synthetic mice to end all mice. And uh, it's a, yeah, it seems like a project that we haven't heard much about. So um, it's a complicated uh, article. There's a lot to take in, a lot of new acronyms. Anyway, we're going Synthetic mice. Yes, well, you'll hear all about it. <laughs> we're going, Synthetic yeah, and, and if you feel worried, I think you probably should. Um, but anyway, we'll speak to Bob Phelps from Gene Ethics uh, later in the show after 8 o'clock about, uh, about that article. And he's got a few other things, too. He thinks we're looking at the wrong story on Barnaby Joyce. So we'll hear a bit about that, too. A bit of front page news for Wednesday breakfast. Yeah. I hope the tabloids are tuning in because we've also got Shark Fact File coming in. Oh, great. <laughs> dispelling the myth or dispelling the myths around sharks and how dangerous they are and the growth of the shark rate and also the attack rate on the population living in Australia. Do you mean the human population or the shark population? Well, both, I think. The, yeah. the human population has been whipped up into a hysteria around sharks. Possibly, this is what the article says. Mm. Um, and, and, who, and we'll be speaking to speaking about that, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to get Jane Williamson in the, the phone. She's yeah. phoning in from Sydney, so she'll be oh, in the phone. Very nice, in the phone. And you know what? I just think sharks are hungry. That's my, my feeling. But anyway, I'll hear, it'll be interesting to hear what Jane has to say. All right. Well, you bring that line strong, Judith, and we'll <laughs> okay. see what we catch later on in the show. Okay. Um, and we've also got at the top end, but before we get there, we've got some good um, live recordings from a Dani rally that just happened. Well, it wasn't a rally. It was actually a door knock Oh, campaign. pardon me. No, no. So, but it is part of a campaign for sure. And a couple of weeks ago, you people probably remember, we had... Um, Jake Wishart from 350 Australia on on the show talking about their camp. So it's all part of the Batman by-election. And um, they were door knocking on the weekend. So I always think door knocking is a fairly brave and bold thing for citizens to front up to do. So I went along to uh, <laughs> to hear, you know, they how they prepared that and um, and and what happened. 
I'm looking forward to hearing what happened because you asked me yesterday if I door knocked and I don't think I, I definitely haven't door knocked. I've um, stood on the street and yelled profanities, but I haven't door knocked before. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to listening in and how some first timers some veterans experienced the door knocking. Yes, and indeed it was first timers and vet- veterans. Yeah. Ah, beautiful. Um, up next, before we get there, um, just in a moment, we'll be talking with Helen Raymond, um, co-curator, senior exhibition coordinator at the RMIT University. She'll be also in the phone um, talking about a exhibition, Water Plus Wisdom, Australia and India. Well, that's, I mean, water is so important right now. I mean, we just heard about, you know, recently about uh, one of the, which one, I'm embarrassed now, I can't remember which city it was in South Africa, that was losing their water supply. So water, big one. We need to pay attention to mm. it. So stay tuned up next. you got to remember, Nainop's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy Nadoff! Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Right here on 3CR. That's right, you're here on 3CR. It is Wednesday breakfast with myself, Patty, and Judith. And on the line, we have co-curator um, Helen Raymond, who has put together an exhibition, or has helped put together an exhibition, Water, Wisdom, Australia, India. Welcome, Helen. Good morning. Um, thank you for having me on the show this morning. Uh, our absolute pleasure. Thanks for being up this early. I, I always am, I'm afraid. <laughs> I was I was wondering if you would say that, you know, I think I every, always am. <laughs> everyone varies a bit about that. So yeah. It's as I was explaining to Patrick, this is the best time to catch me. So and the city that you were just mentioning in South Africa South Africa is Cape Town. Fantastic. All the issues with water at the moment. Yes, great. Thank you for that. Yeah. We were scrambling over here at Three CR looking through our technology, it was failing us for a little bit. So thanks, Helen, for that. Well, of course, these issues are very present for us at the moment. That's why we're across them all and posting these stories on social media because this could happen to us. And that is one of the reasons we um, sort of started thinking about this exhibition and we were looking at the similar issues between Australia and India in terms of water scarcity and um, a lot of 
themes around water, pollution, filth, food, spirituality, and we were really surprised with the commonalities between Australia and India. I think that's that's amazing, really. And, um, yeah, what were they? Well, um, traditional knowledge was a big um, theme that came out of our research. So we looked at um, Indigenous artists in Australia and the wonderful stories around the rivers, the um, nets, basket weaving, eel traps, we looked at some fabulous research that's been coming out of RMIT with um, a researcher working with the Bujbem people up in northwest Victoria and looking at the, um, I think they may well be UNESCO heritage sites now, but the eel traps and the yes. photography and the stories around that. Uh, we borrowed some beautiful eel traps from the Curry Heritage Trust and we're telling that story and some fish nets from... Um, an artist called Mandy Nicholson, who's up in also up in up in Swan Hill, and she's been working um, re rediscovering her history with um, weaving and fish traps and and women's work. Mm. There's some beautiful images um, at the gallery and some some great works. There's been over 40 different artists that have responded to this theme and from both India and Australia, I believe. And yes. there's some interactive maps going over the, um, that people can play with, I believe. It looks like yes. there's a little sand, there's a That's sand pit the, and then there's a topography. That's been one of our most popular things. We worked with the gaming department at RMIT and put together a interactive sandbox. It's augmented reality. So you play with the sand, and as you play with the sand, there's a projection down onto the sand. You can make rivers, you can make deserts, you can make ice-topped mountains. It makes a bit of a mess. (laughs) (laughs) We have to clean up sand every morning, but it's a lot of fun and been super popular with everyone. Mm. Getting that hands-on experience into an exhibition is quite rare, so it's nice to see. Yeah, and you say it was, it's been popular with everyone. I bet a lot of um, adult children are really keen to, <laughs> yes. to get into the sand fit and play. Well, it just brings these issues to life of what we're talking about. So if I do this with the sand, I'm making a desert. If I stop the water here, there's a desert. So, you know, just a lot of common sense made fun. And bring, mm. brings it home by the sound of it. It does. Yeah. And so what has been the main drive, say, from the exhibition's point of view and then RMIT's point of view to host this exhibition? Because it is obviously a big um, cross-cultural collaboration between India and Australia. Um, what, are, what have been the hopes for the exhibition? Well, I'd say what we've brought to life are the sim- similar issues that we're facing. The water scarcity, the pollution, how we... What I was talking about before, used. um the water for food, that's what's come out of it. Um, In terms of pollution, a lot of the Indian artists are facing some really significant issues, far greater than we have here, uh, with the pollution in their rivers. Do you know what's causing the pollution in their rivers in India? Uh, I think it's just bad... I look, uh, bad I planning. Glad planning, um, pumping filth into them. And what I think people have been surprised at coming to our exhibition, we have some stunning 
photographs of stepwells, which are around Rajasthan by an American journalist. And they're thinking, well, why is an American, why have we gone to an American for these beautiful photos? But we find that the environmental, the artists in India have got much, much bigger messages to convey than, you know, showing the beauty of these stepwells. So they are um, showing us, oh, there's a very interesting film by Viva Gohotra where she has some people rowing down a river with a white cloth and at the, the end of it, they get out of the boat and they wring the cloth and the filth that comes out of the cloth is just, you know, right. distressing. And she actually uses this filth for her paintings. But sadly, we couldn't bring a painting because they actually have, they're very fragile. But she's coming out. She's arriving today, I think, and oh. she's speaking at the gallery tomorrow okay. about her work. What time is she going to be there tomorrow? She's speaking at 12.30. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's yeah. all the, the information's on our website. Okay. That'd be, I'd love to, love to hear her. Yeah. Mm. And get along there. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us. If people want to get down to the exhibition, where would they be heading? They'd be heading down to the RMIT building. University starting to kick back into gear. There's lots oh, of students gosh, walking through there at the moment. Super crowded. It's fantastic. The whole precinct is really alive. We're at 344 Swanson Street, up from the State Library and near the Latrobe Street corner. Mm. So we welcome, we're open 11 till 5 and 12 to 5 on Saturdays. So, and actually, sorry, we're open late. Thursday night till 7pm. Oh, good. And one, can make it. one last question before you've left. Has there been any um, artist response to an imaginative way to um, tackle the pollution in India or in Australia with water management? Has anything arisen from this work? I think if you come in, you spend some time, you watch the films, you look at the artworks, you'll leave with a feeling of hope. Good. So that's, what we ha- that's the message. All right. Well, thank you. That's a nice thing to leave on on the last day of summer. A bit of hope. Thanks so much, Helen. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We were speaking to Helen Raymond, co-curator, senior exhibition coordinator at RMIT University, talking about um, summer's exhibition that was running from December 1st to March 10th. So there's still a couple of days left in it, 10 nearly to be precise. Um, yes, yeah, can... so I'm so glad because, you know, it's so e- there's so much going on in Melbourne that it is really easy to miss things, and this sounds like it's very worthwhile. And ever since the Cape Town story, um, I've been really thinking a lot about Australia. I mean, this is um, such an issue potentially for us here, and I suppose particularly you're thinking about, you know, all the water that has been promised the Adani mine, mm. like an endless supply almost, uh, and that's going to affect the Great Artesian Basin, but we'll hear more about Adani in a minute. Yeah, and mm. not only that, but I'd just like to flash back to the Catherine story that we ran a little while ago and still lived experience with the military, um, fire extinguishers, the chemicals leaching into the water supply up there in Catherine. Yes, that's right. That was a very sad story. Too. So water management yeah. is definitely something that's um, yeah. very real. I don't think we feel it so much in the urban centres, but in the, um, I suppose, places that really heavily rely for production and then also survival is somewhere where it's felt mm-hmm. a lot more. You are tuned into 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights 
because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. My name is Selva Coolidge-Shelvin and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. was Ry Kuda with uh, No Banger Left Behind, and I think it's his kind of ode to the global financial crisis that came out not too long after that, but uh, you know, everyone lost out. But the bankers, and uh, interestingly, the bankers aren't backing the Adani mine, so uh, they're looking out for their interests too. Oh, and and by the way, the yeah, that um, song was from Pull Up Some Dust and Sit Down, which was the, the album. Yeah, so yeah, the bankers are not supporting the Adani mine. And um, that's just interesting and probably something we should pay attention to. Mm. Mm-hmm. But as you'd know, Patty, and I certainly know because I'm in the electorate, there's a by-election coming up in Batman. There is, there is. Yeah, due to the resignation of Labour MP You can David vote at the moment, Cheney. I believe. What's that? People are voting at the moment. Well, I hope so. I, hope, I mean, I've certainly had my postal vote in yeah. the mail, but I haven't found the pre-state stations. I'm actually going to be interstate on the, on the day. It's kind of interesting because um, it's, it's, it's going to be a very close, uh, closely contested election, and it was close also the last time David Feeney only barely scraped in with liberal preferences, so I understand. Um, and the Greens, over the Greens, and the Greens are, yeah, looking good. However, Labour's running a, a strong candidate. But interestingly, in Jed Kearney, um, <clears throat> excuse me, but one of the things that's getting lots of attention in this campaign is the Adani coal mine. And just a couple of weeks ago, as I said earlier, we spoke to Jake Wishart about the Stop Adani campaign. And that's organised by 350 Australia and the Australian Conservation Foundation. And when he was here, he told us that they'd be doing some door knocking. And that all started on the weekend, on Saturday. They met up in uh, Ray Bramham Gardens in Preston. And they had some training, the door knockers did. And before they went out, went out in pairs. And um, then they, yeah, then they, after they went out for a couple of hours. But anyway... 
I went along and um, you never know, you know, you're there with your mic and you never know if anyone's going to want to talk to you or not. It's always a little bit, oh, am I intruding or not? But actually, I was amazed. People were very keen to say why they were out. Well, you have to do whatever you can to, um, to try and stop climate change. It's so bad for the world. It's, it's the biggest issue we face, I think. Well, we're here because the change is not coming from the top, so we've got to work from the bottom and do it house by house. And what about you, Richard? Yeah, I live in the electorate, and I think it's really important that people uh, use the opportunity of an election, which is one of the few times when candidates, but particularly parties, uh, listen to what's going on in the street to to make it clear what we want. And what we want is a clean energy future. And Adani's got no role in that clean energy future. And I'm really keen to see Australia move from dirty energy with uranium and coal into a renewable future. And this is uh, knocking on doors to, to express that and to share that. Yeah, I'm out, um, going to be out door knocking today because I think it's an amazing opportunity to find out what the ro local residents think about Adani and whether they've heard about Adani and it's a great opportunity to make them aware that they can stop this mine by using their vote and where it's just such a critical time, time's running out. This Adani mine is a critical symbolic issue that we have to win on in order to move forward to a renewable future brings you out today. It's just such a dumb idea so you know if the politicians don't accept the science that it's a dumb idea we have to just walk the streets to let people know about. Yeah I'm just really disappointed with the Labor uh, position on the Adani mine and I think Labor's really playing with the people who are concerned about it by offering little little carrots of we might change our mind and we, if it stacks up and all these things. And we need to really know what their position is so that we know who to vote for because I'll be certainly not voting for them if they decide to pursue the mine. I'm a very busy person but I really, really worry about climate change. I think it's the most important issue of our time and to stop a Dani mine is a focus for that. So um, that's why I've come out today. And are you a bit scared about going door knocking? Because I think that's a big thing. I, I am a little bit, yes. But I do customer service as a job so... I'm hoping that that skill will carry over. This isn't about uh, whether it's an economically viable proposition. It's not so much about you know using taxpayer money. This is about the future of our planet. I think this is a turning point in the history of the planet. If we can defeat Adani's plans to go ahead with this mine, other big polluters will get the message and that things will swing towards green energy. And those were some of the views of the people who came out last Saturday afternoon to door knock in the electorate of Batman. During the training, people had the opportunity to ask more questions, and they were invited to work in pairs to support one another while door knocking. After the training, I spoke with Kelly O'Shaughnessy. She's the chief executive officer of the Australian Conservation Foundation, one of the organisers, along with 350 Australia, of the Stop Adani campaign. And we're here on a day that it's raining and yeah. windy, and now the sun's just come out again. I think we've had everything. Mm -hmm. It's Melbourne. Weather is uh, very unpredictable, that's for sure. But you've just had now a, a training for the people that are about to go door knocking. How did you feel it went? Look, the training was fantastic and we've really great, a great turnout of people, volunteers who are wanting to talk to people in Batman about the Adani coal mine. So you're going to be out on the streets this afternoon? 
So we're on the streets this afternoon, tomorrow afternoon, and then the Saturday and Sunday next weekend. There's a lot of other activity going on in the electorate as well. So there'll be a candidates forum. When is the candidates forum? Well, candidates forum is on the 6th of March. And if anyone wants to come, it's between 7 and 9 p.m. at the Northcote Town Hall. Hopefully we will get Alex Bathal and Jed Carney there to talk about their views on climate change. And, and you said hopefully. Have, have either of the candidates confirmed they'll be there? I think Alex Bathal's um, confirmed and Jed Carney's been invited. Both women would be great MPs. It's really important though to have a look at the policy of the party that they represent because that's all we can go on as to what the party will do if they're elected into government. So we do know the Greens have a much stronger policy on the Adani coal mine than the ALP at the moment. Doesn't mean though that the ALP won't change their policy and that's the point of getting out and talking to people. So we're out today having conversations with hundreds of people. We're aiming to knock on eight thousand doors over four days and uh, how do you feel about the turnout today i think it's about 27 i've counted ah, yeah it's um it's a pretty good turnout it's really hard to door knock people get a bit intimidated by it and i'm one of those people even though i've door knocked before it's still a little bit scary but then you actually realize the people you're having conversations with are just other friendly people and actually so many people in the world are concerned about global warming very concerned about this coal mine and it does end up in a nice conversation so it's wonderful that a whole bunch of people have turned out today. And that was Kelly O'Shaughnessy, the CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation. And uh, people were pretty passionate about why they were there, as you would have heard. And we're going to find out how they went in a minute. Are you doing the right thing? Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. Well, we, we just heard a bit about the Stop Adani campaign and the supporters and why they turned up to go door knocking. So um, they were out for two hours. They left around 2 o'clock, came back 4 o'clock on, on Saturday afternoon. I was afraid they might be too tired to talk to me, but I, I boldly uh, came with my <laughs> recording equipment, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Knocked on probably about 50 doors, I think, or more. Maybe half of them are uh, supporting. A lot of them aren't, aren't coming to the doors either. Yeah. Is it the first time you've ever done anything like this? First time I've been door to door. I've done other things. I've um, joined various campaigns around the place. I'm used, used to that sort of thing. You don't mind talking? No, I have to talk. I'm a teacher. So. <laughs> Were you at all nervous doing it? Uh, yeah, look, the first few, a little bit, just because I'm not totally confident talking about it. But then as soon as I sort of get the swing of it, it's fine. Was there anyone who was hostile to, to the Stop a Danny campaign? I wouldn't say hostile. Like there's, there's a few people saying, you know, look, I'm a staunch Labor voter. I'm not interested. Um, but that's about as far as it went. And uh, so what would you say to other people who might be thinking about door knocking tomorrow or next weekend? Look, I think it's really fun. It gets you out of your comfort zone and get to meet new people. So I think it's a positive thing to do. For me, it's an issue that's close to heart. I'm passionate about the environment. I'm fearful of climate change and I hate 
idiocracy in the government and the Adani mine is idiotic. We're, we're, we're coming to the end of, of coal fire generation. So it's just insane that they're, they're even contemplating a, a brand new project that's going to draw it out for another couple of decades. Met some really nice people, a few dogs. People were interested, wanted to talk about it, they wanted signs, people knew a lot about it. It was great, just nice conversations with people talking about something that I care about. And the people who didn't know about it, how did they respond when you told them? Um, we gave them some information and they said they were happy to read it and I said, you know, maybe if you read this, think about it and maybe think about it when you're voting the, at the next election. So, you know, they were happy to get some information. There wasn't anyone hostile at all? No, nobody hostile. No. And one guy was a bit, I'm not interested, I support the mine, thanks very much. And If that's the worst that happens. <laughs> that's the worst. And it stopped raining. So, how did it go? Door knocking was rem remarkably enjoyable. Was it the first time you've done it? Yes, it was. I really enjoyed seeing a different neighbourhood and seeing different people. And a couple of people said they didn't want to talk to me about it, but some people were, were really enthusiastic. Okay, so in fact it was a pretty gentle experience. It, wa it was a pretty gentle experience, but it's easy selling something you really believe in. So you've been out uh, door knocking? Yes, I have, with my giant dog, Sandy. And Sandy is very giant, I can, I can say. He is giant. He's as tall as my Irish wolfhound. So, and Irish wolfhounds are the tallest Where dogs in the world. He's a cross between probably a deerhound and, and a lots of other breeds. Did Sandy scare any of the people whose doors you knocked at? No, but there was a cat that was a bit frightened <laughs> at one house. So she stood behind the guy that we were talking to going meow, meow the whole time. How did people respond? We had conversations at almost every house that we uh, went to. 90% of the conversations, they were already on board. And there were two conversations that I thought were really fantastic. One of the conversations was about someone who said he'd heard about Adani, but he didn't know much about it and he wanted to research it. And so we gave him some, some tips on where he could Google it and find out more information himself. And the other one that we really loved was this person who said, listen, I'm really torn about this because there's two sides to this. There's the, the money coming into Australia with the resources. There's the jobs that mining provides as a general thing versus I know already that it's bad for the Great Barrier Reef. So we had a really good conversation about that. He agreed that it was terrible that Great Artesian Basin could be touched at all because he wasn't even aware of that part. He said that he agreed that it was terrible about all the coal ships going out of the Great Barrier Reef um, from the Abbott Point Terminal and that the Great Barrier Reef needs to be protected. But on the flip side, he, he was very passionately Australian and he wanted the best by Australia. But the issues with the Great Artesian Basin, he then said, well... In Greece, which is where he comes from, they'd had all these issues where the water areas had been fracked there. So, yeah, it was a really great conversation, and I'm sure that he'll think further. And what about for you? Is this your first time doing something like this? Uh, no, I've done uh, door knocking with ACF before, uh, especially in People's Climate March, which happened uh, in 2015, and then in election campaign in 2016. So... Yeah, but it's always a great experience to get out there in the community and talk to people about these issues. How did this one compare with perhaps other things you've done? 
we have been quite lucky like the street which we did uh, most people were aware and very supportive so we didn't have any difficulties in talking to people so, and i think uh, with all the noise around adani mine and uh, everything be, uh, being on the news uh, people are quite aware and uh, they want to stop it so it was good to have those like reinforcements and reassurances that people are going to stop this mine it was actually great fun and, uh, as soon as it stopped raining it was a little bit damp at the first it's been a really interesting mix people i think often having quite decided their vote but still quite interested in talking about the issue. I've always find with door knocking it's hard to start but once you get going it's a lot of fun. Well that's what most people have said actually. People who are really really nice um, who wanted to talk for a really long time if they could and we're just going thank you thank you for doing this work so that was most of it. Really quite considerable success in getting five lots of vote climate and five lots of um, stop Adani on people's fences and I think that'll give a real sense of the neighbourhood being sort of united together in um, opposing Adani and making climate action an issue in the election. Jake, you were one of the organisers of the events today. How did you feel it went? I was very pleasantly surprised. We finished our training and just as we were about to set off to do a bunch of community conversations and door knocking, the heavens opened and it pelted with rain. So I was, I was a bit worried that, we were, that it was you know, going to be a bit of a washout, but actually everyone came back with smiles on their faces and there's been a lot of support from residents. There's lots of people that either have a yard sign already that says Stop Adani and lots of people want more yard signs. Yeah, I think people have had a good time. And that was Jake Wishart from 350 Australia, one of the organisers, along with the Australian Conservation Foundation of the Stop Adani campaign. And I can say I really enjoyed going out and talking to the people who were door knocking. And, I mean, their passion, but also their knowledge of the issues, I thought was, was very impressive. Mm. It was really great to get a sense of what people got back from door knocking and what they, they came across yeah. in the election campaign I suppose it is to make it a big issue um, yes. and get that presence out there Tom girl my lovers um, and if you plan to head to the ocean and you do have a shark phobia you may want to stay tuned because at the, on the phone in the phone we have James Williamson uh, Jane Williamson sorry Jane um, an associate professor who leads the Marine Ecology Group, a research lab at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Um, now, Jane, thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Patrick. Hello. Hello and welcome to the program. Thank um, you. Your research um, focuses on biodiversity and conservation issues associated with human impacts such as climate change, fisheries and plastic pollution. But you've also just recently, along with another, published an article that serves as a bit of a scientific review of the facts around sharks and shark bites on humans and shark numbers. That's correct. So I study threatened species and I also study human impacts, as you said. One of the human impacts that we find are, are commercial fishing of sharks on the east coast of Australia, either directly or through bycatch, meaning they're caught um, when you're actually after a different target species. And most of these shark species are actually, uh, we don't know a lot about them, and they uh, have the potential to be threatened. So white sharks are actually listed as a threatened species on, um, as a national species in Australia. 
So I tend to have a focus on white sharks, although I don't study the animals directly. I study their data and mm. their um, catch, catch data over time. Mm. And in this article, you um, summarise a few different studies in there and give it out as, as a review. But what led you to do this? What really spurred you on um, to put this information out there and try and disseminate it amongst the public? Very good question. Uh, I find that there's a lot of fictitious information on white sharks and white shark bites um, out there in the public. And my colleague, um, Vincent Rowell, from the University of Newcastle and I decided to um, put some facts, just pure facts, out there. So we actually did this review and had a look at the uh, numbers of white sharks from the Australian shark attack file over the last 30 years. And we uh, have consolidated that information into a graphic. And we looked at the recent, um, the, the recent papers that have actually looked comprehensively at the numbers of sharks, particularly on the East Coast. So we just thought we'd put it all in one place so that people had an overall view of what's happening. Mm. Um, and what were the numbers of those sharks that you came across? What, did you, what were the findings of yeah, the white sharks in particular on the East Coast? Were they increasing or have they been plateauing or just staying moderately? Okay, so there's actually... No evidence of, a, uh, of an increase in um, shark numbers either on the, west, uh, the east and the west coast, either place. And this is actually despite uh, conservation efforts. Um, the sharks have been uh, listed as a threatened species, as I said, since the late 1990s. And despite all this information, despite the efforts, the sharks are either plateauing or slightly decreasing over time. Mm. That's very interesting. And within the article, it says from 1997 to 2017, um, the total number of incidents were 355. Um, and that was incidents, both fatal and just injuries or just reported shark attacks where nothing really happened or a limb was bitten. Um, that's quite that's quite a number. But when, when you put it into context and the, and put it into context with the population growth, which is now at 24 million, I believe, in Australia. Yep. Um, it's, um, I don't know, I think it helps contextualise what's going on there. How do you feel your reaction is to the media at the moment with every shark sighting really being put front page across both the tabloids and on the internet? I don't think it's very useful to do that. This is one of the reasons why we wanted to get this information out to the public. Um, people, and rightly so, um, have, uh, you know, uh, shark attacks are very dramatic when they do happen and they're catastrophic for the families and for the person and for the community around um, the area that that happens. But they are not regular things that occur. So and this is what we're trying to get out here. Mm. Um, we have a threatened species. Um, and we seem to be trying by media, um, death by trial, really, through the media with these threatened species. Whereas in reality, they actually help balance the ecosystem, the marine ecosystem, and we need to um, understand them, understand how we can reduce our chances of interacting with them, which is research, and um, then you know, modify our, our activities around that. 
Mm. How do you say the what's your response uh, from a researcher who looks into fisheries to the extreme? I don't know tourism around diving with sharks and burling up the water to attract sharks around human activity. What do you feel? Has there been any research around that area and what that does to a place where sharks do inhabit and their relationship with humans and their yeah, feeding habits? Yeah, there's been habits? some excellent research on that coming out of South Australia, actually, from Flinders University. Um, look, my personal opinion with that is that that's just a bit silly because you know, these animals are quite smart and you don't really want to associate humans in the water with um, their prey. So what we're doing is making a, dis a close association then with putting humans in the water, putting prey burling around. I mean, that's just asking for trouble, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, there, was a, there was quite a big fact put out there in the article um, by, it was quoted and referenced by the Surf Life Saving Australia back in 2010, estimating that there was over... Let me get this fact straight. Was it a hundred million or ten billion um, visits to the ocean in Australia that year? Uh, something like that. Yes. Yeah, quite a number. Um, and within that it's number, huge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting. To, and then to look at the shark attack graph, because on this um, conversation article that you've published is also a diagram or map of Australia. And on that map, there's little dots of all the incidents, the 355 incidents that have been reported um, sitting there where you can get a little bit of information there um, and get a very strong visual. Was that your part that was put there or is that part of a research? Um, no, we, we did that. That's, a, that's original to this article. Uh, beautiful, it's well done. I would recommend people checking it out. It just gives you a little bit of context to those shark attacks. Yes, that's, that's why we did it, so people can actually have a look. They can um, have a look in their area. They can have a look over time by sh um, species of shark, by season. And the data speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. you know, so this, this is why we did it. We've, you know, it's just bare data. You can have a look and see. Now, these data are based on the Australian shark attack file, which is actually... Um, based at Taronga Zoo. Uh, they've been recording information on shark interactions for over 30 years now. And they gather all the information on shark and humans that are reported in Australian waters. Um, but so the number of deaths is absolute, the number of fatalities. The number of injured people is um, pretty absolute. Um, and the number of uninjured people is a little bit fuzzy. So there's some comments about, oh, but you forgot this particular um, interaction. But if it's not on the Australian shark attack file, we haven't included it. No. So and, uh, we've just used that one source that's seen as an internationally recognised source. Yes. And uh, look, just a little while ago, you said something about the shark's role in the ecosystem. Could you just say a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, we know that, um, you know, big sharks eat big fish and big fish eat little fish, etc down the trophic levels um, within the environment. And if you take out those, what we call apex or top predators, it means you get an overabundance of the next level down that are no longer being predated upon. If you get an overabundance of these species, they're eating the other fish um, yes. further down. And those fish are often, those two layers are often um, fish that we consume and fish that... Um, you know, just have other cascading impacts. For example, if you're eating the small fish, then it's likely that algae is 
will grow that um, the small fish were consuming. So you get these interactions that happen sort of quite indirectly from the removal of these apex predators. Yeah, I mean, and just going on to the um, the media reports, I have found it interesting in some of the reports where families of people who maybe they've had a family member die, something like that, their responses are varied, but I've been interested in the number of times people have said, you know, my son would just be appalled if the, res the response to this was to get rid of sharks kind of thing, that sometimes the family, well, I I've found at times the families are fairly sensitive to the issues around sharks, even though they've had a loss. That's correct. So many of these people that um, are in the water, um, they love surfing, they love um, diving, they love snorkeling. Uh, they have a of a, 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 um, a heart for animals in the water and they understand a lot of the importance of sharks and how quite often, you know, some of these bites are just mistakes by sharks. I mean, we make mistakes all the time, so it's not surprising that sharks can actually make the mis odd mistake here and there. Yes, and you did say they're very, very intelligent creatures. Yeah, we believe that to be the case. Mm. Yeah. So what do we have around education here? Um, what are the behaviours of sharks and how do we get that education out to people? Is there any programs running? And one other question that's always running around in my head with the latest currents running down the east coast um, was young juvenile white sharks coming in and testing out the waters. Is that due to a change in the population of that shark cohort or is that due to the waters changing? What has brought in that closer proximity of the white shark? Or is it? There's a, there's a great group that's actually studying that particular question um, as we speak. Uh, but we believe that it's because the um, currents have changed um, and are bringing uh, different uh, bodies of water closer to the continent. And along with those bodies of water, they're very rich in, um, in plankton, which are very small animals, which a lot of the bait fish like to eat. So the bait fish then are found close to shore. So these are sort of large groups of fish that, you know, you can see from the air that look black almost, and they've been coming a lot closer to shore than usual, and the sharks are following them in. Mm. So the other thing that you mentioned were the juveniles, and it's, it's interesting because the sharks, um, until they get to a certain age, have um, a diet of something, which is small fish, um, and then they actually change their diet from a juvenile to an adult. And it's in that diet change when the sharks are about uh, roughly about two metres that we think they're making mistakes and they're accidentally um, attacking people because their diet is changing and they're not really sure. So it's not usually um, the really small ones and it's not usually the really large ones, although that does happen, particularly in Western Australia. But... Um, it's often on the east coast in New South Wales anyway that that juvenile two to three metre stage. Mm. And so there are many educational programs running alongside, say, beaches to or places where, I don't know, a shark cull has been called um, into action. Yeah, look, the New South Wales government, um, DPI, Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales, has been very proactive on the shark campaign. And they've been putting out, uh, the, there's an app you can have on your phone. You can check where um, shark sightings have been. 
Uh, there's information on that app to uh, help people decide whether they want to go into the water based on different other criteria. And uh, we're, we're trying to get the word out there that um, information is knowledge. There's still a backlash of people saying, oh, but you've been studying it for so long and you should know by now. Uh, but the truth is that these things take a long time to grow and mature and reproduce. So it's very difficult to work out what they're doing over their entire life history until you have the data showing from birth to reproduction. Yes, and of course circumstances change. Yes, I mean, the exactly. environment in the ocean has changed. That's for, correct. For sharks and whales and, and everyone, really. Yeah, so, hmm. it does take a long time. Hmm. Oh, well, something to keep... Um, in touch with and it was great to read your article often there's a lot of as you say misinformation a lot of myths along with sharknado big production hollywood <laughs> films yes, it's got a lot to answer for yes um which i don't know whether it helps or doesn't it helps you laugh at some of it but i think it also creeps in there the little sharks but it would be yeah uh, hopefully people can get a little bit more informed around the behaviors of sharks because i believe they have dining rooms within the ocean and different places where you can swim and you shouldn't swim, but uh, anyway, something to stay tuned to. I appreciate your time, Jane. Um, thanks for joining us here on Wednesday Breakfast. My pleasure. Have a nice day. You too. You're tuned in to Wednesday Breakfast. We were just speaking with Jane Williamson, Associate Professor at the Macquarie University. And up next we have... Bob Phelps. We do. And look, I don't know if you were reading the Sydney Morning Herald um, last Saturday, but there was an article entitled, Could Western Australia Be the Genetic Testing Ground for Synthetic Mice to End All Mice? Well, could it? Bob Phelps from Gene Ethics is going to tell us more. Welcome to 3CR. Welcome back to 3CR, Bob Phelps. Good morning, Judith. Uh, I should say, too, that the article was also in The Age. So, uh, oh, so I, I could have read it in Melbourne as well. as well. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I... I've on quite... Saturday. So if people still read The Age on Saturday, uh, it would have been in there. Yeah, well, I'm sure they do. And I saw it online, so I wasn't aware. I saw it online from Sydney Morning. In fact, I think I saw it because you might have... Um, Gene Ethics might have sent out an email Um could have, yes, yeah. yes. Yes. Well, the nub of the story is that the US military, particularly uh, their Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, D-A-R-P-A, anybody can look it up on the web and find a lot, um, is uh, commissioning Australian researchers to do um, research on their behalf in Australia. And that was really the nub of the story that... Um, CSIRO and uh, the University of Adelaide are getting bags of money to do um, research for the U.S. military here. Yes, and uh, and I just uh, just an alert to people listening: uh, there will be a few new acronyms, I think, <laughs> coming up, and DARPA is one of them. And as you say, it looks like they are funding the development of the syn synthetic mice. But what what else has DARPA... I mean, it's been going since the Cold War. It's been going a long time. What else has it been involved in in the past? Oh, anything and everything that it can find that uh, has got military applications. So often the military is in advance of everybody else, really. And yeah. DARPA is the biggest funder of uh, the new gene drive uh, research and development, which is... Uh, one of the aspects of the new CRISPR technology, uh, people may have run across CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. Yes, uh, I won't, yes. 
unravel the acronym. It's uh, just too long and complicated. But, uh, of course, these are the new GM techniques, which our government is currently considering for deregulation as well. So there's a, really a huge debate going on at the moment globally. Um, a lot of scientists, including people like David Suzuki and Vandana Shiva and a large number of countries too, are arguing at the United Nations that this particular use, uh, the gene, so-called gene drives, uh, should be banned. And the gene drives are a particular use of the new gene technologies, um, which we're calling extinction technologies, because uh, they run against the uh, natural processes of evolution, in fact. They uh, yeah, appear in fact, to they, ensure they, that... Uh, sorry, I think they see evolution as They ensure as 100% hostile. of the offspring... Mm, sorry? I think evolution is seen almost as an enemy. I mean, it, you know, the, the way species adapt to, you know, so the two technologies and change and survive, that's almost seen as this is something we want to prevent, this adaptation. Was that, did well, that make the, any sense at all? The gene, this, this new gene drive technology the, uh, ex has the potential to extinguish a whole species uh, by driving a deleterious gene through the whole population at 100% rather than the normal 50% yes. inheritance rate yes. and thereby um, stopping that gene going out of the population. And uh, the work that they're planning to do, they say they'll do on offshore islands around Australia. So, of course, uh, we needn't worry. But uh, we saw with the Caliche virus, for instance, on Wardang Island off South Australia that it... Uh, was contained on Wardang Island for a, a couple of weeks and not the um, long period of research that they had envisaged. And uh, th the other issue is that um, these technologies are probably not species-specific. So when the work with uh, Kalichi virus was being done, um, it was assumed that the virus would go worldwide and, moreover, that it could... Um, uh, kill hares as well as rabbits in that case. Um, so we worry that um, in the case of the latest research with mice, which is supposed to happen on islands, uh, whether um, related species will also be impacted, uh, native spe species that are native to Australia. Yes, and I, I did look up some of those islands um, you know, on the coast of, off the coast of Western Australia, and in some cases they're very close to the land, but also they do have their own um, mice that are, you know, Australian marsupial mice, at least one does, and I think another island yeah. has another mouse. So, uh, that, yeah, so I think definitely those concerns are justified. But what, where will the development of the synthetic mice, the original development of the mice, take place? Well, it'll happen in Geelong. Um, Geelong has um, Australia's only level four a high um, security research facility, particularly for animal work. Uh, it's the Australian Animal Health Laboratory uh, just outside Geelong. And um, as part of this uh, disclosure on the weekend, uh, Mark Tizard, who's one of the people involved in that research, has um, agreed to speak and... Um, says, of course, that uh, everything's going to be A-OK. -okay. We encountered Mark, in fact, at a meeting uh, in Melbourne put on by the Melbourne University a couple of weeks ago, 
at which um, Kevin Esfeldt from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who is one of the developers of this um, new gene drive uh, uh, genetic engineering um, technology, was saying that um, he, as one of the developers, he had made a major mistake, an embarrassing mistake, in uh, doing the work that he had done because he now has very, very serious doubts as a result of his more recent work um, that uh, gene drives can be contained and can be spe species-specific, as is being claimed by people like Mark Tizard from uh, from AL. I mean, um, one of the things I noticed in the article they, about the laboratories in Geelong is they're talking about a about biosecure mouse facility that they're using. So I just found that a kind of fascinating term, a biosecure mouse facility, and it just sounds so much like science fiction. But from what you're saying, um, certainly the developer of the gene um, is saying that, you know, this is really just not a good idea. I mean, how biosecure is the mouse facility? Uh, the owl facility is uh, moderately secure. I know that... Um for instance, um, a decade ago, um, they allowed a researcher to go home after being infected with Newcastle disease, which is a disease of chickens, and um, that caused quite a stir there. Um, yeah. Its security uh, involves things like airlocks and so on, and unfortunately one researcher was trapped in there and died uh, several years ago too. So. Uh, it is level four. It's pretty um, pretty secure. But we've got other examples um, during the 1990s when similar work was being done to immunosterilize um, uh, a, a range of feral animals in Australia. They were working with rabbits, uh, mice, and others. Um, unfortunately, one of their one of the um, deleterious um, viruses that they were going to use to um, kill or sterilize these um, organisms, which is not that dissimilar from the, um, from the research goals being pursued at the moment, that uh, they developed a mousepox virus which killed all their experimental animals. And at that time, it was written up in the uh, scientific literature as um, a possible methodology for creating bioterror weapons and we think this is why the U.S. military is so interested in it, that um, the military applications of some of the things that have already been found out uh, makes you shiver, really. Yes, and, I was wondering uh, that, what the, um, the mil why the military is funding, why DARPA is funding this whole project. And, and well, they're looking see. at uh, projects around the world. In fact, DARPA is the biggest funder of these kinds of research in, everywhere in the world. So we're not the only ones that are targets for this. But yes. the fact that it's going on here and that, um, for instance, uh, some of the researchers involved, including um, Dr. Tizard that I mentioned from AL, are unfortunately also at the moment engaged in advising our federal government to deregulate these technologies. So uh, we're talking a major the CRISPR, debate going on. The CRISPR technology, is that one of them? Yes, CRISPR is one of the technologies. RNA interference is another one, and another one called null segregants, which are uh, organisms that are the offspring of genetically engineered organisms 
they're arguing that they should be deregulated as well. And unfortunately, these people have inside running with our regulators who are saying um, these things, even though we haven't got the evidence yet, and even though they don't have any history of safe use yet, um, are probably going to be just like stuff that exists in nature already, and therefore we should deregulate it. Um, the regulator has been proposing this, and there is also um, a national review of the gene technology scheme, which involves all the governments in Australia at the moment as well, and those same group of scientists and, incidentally, the GM industry as well, um, are cozying up to the uh, people who are making these decisions on our behalf and really not much of this is out in the public domain. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, when, we need and, a much more thoroughgoing public discussion. Yes. And so tell me, where is that review up to? Because I think, and, and I'm not sure if I've got quite got this right, but didn't submissions close just uh, recently? Last Wednesday, um, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator uh, review and her proposals to deregulate those gene technology um, techniques that I've mentioned. Uh, last Wednesday, that particular phase of the discussion closed. However, uh, that was the end of phase two, which has been going on since 2016. And we're now going to hear from them again, I hope, and with a bit of luck, all of those um, submissions will now be published so we can see what the various interests are saying. Um, as to the National Gene Technology Scheme, um, the uh, Phase 2 submissions to that closed last month and we're now in Phase 3 where they are now going to uh, come up with their preferred position as well, which will involve, as I said, all of the governments of Australia and that will go out for further uh, consultation and discussion as well. But at the moment we've got a very, very concerted uh, effort by science, establishment science, and the genetic manipulation industry, particularly people like um, uh, CropLife, which represents people like Bayer, Monsanto, BASF, Dow and DuPont, ChemChina and so on. That are well, the people, major people with a lot of cash, I, in, I would think. People with <laughs> a lot of cash and a lot of people influence. People with a lot of cash. And, yes. And Bob, yes, I just indeed. want to... So CropLife has been... Um, yeah, sorry, Bob, I just want to uh, introduce you in case people have just tuned in. So if you have just tuned in to 3CR uh, Wednesday Breakfast, we're speaking to Bob Phelps from Gene Ethics about uh, a story that was in the um, Sydney Morning, Morning Herald and The Age on the weekend about synthetic mice. But, of course, it's much a much bigger story than that, as Bob has been explaining to us. That's right, yes. Um, now, uh, I'm just wondering... now and what you know, next? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, with regard to... I mean, I'm just wondering, with the development of the synthetic mice that's happening in Geelong, um, I mean, I'm kind of <clears throat> confused if, if this kind of technology has actually not been approved in Australia yet, that this is what these reviews are about. Are they actually able to do this research? Well, they have said that for the moment, at least, um, the regulator has said that their view about the, the gene drives, which is the uh, mechanism that's going to be used in the research there, that that um, research should be licensed. Now, normally, 
the regulator doesn't license um, research in laboratories, so at least um, they are applying a little bit more rigour to that particular work. But so we, so we won't in see those that, synthetic uh, mice? We won't be seeing them like tomorrow or in the next few days? or Not then... tomorrow. I'd, I'd say they'll be looking to um, review the progress of the research probably in three to five years' time, I'd say. Okay. And uh, they might entertain um, uh, a suggestion or a, an application then that they be released. Mm. But in the meantime, of course, we've got these same scientists spruiking um, the idea of uh, doing the same sort of work on cane toads. Um, yes, I saw that. Determining the, using it to determine the sex of chickens, which the chicken industry wants, uh, engineering hornless cattle, um, etc. I mean, just a cornucopia of different uh, possible applications in human beings, plants, animals, and microorganisms. Literally any living organism on the earth. So this, sin uh, this synthetic mice. So the synthetic mice, in a way, if they do get the go-ahead, really do, in a way, creep through our genetics um, across the board. Is that the application that they're a bit of a springboard, you see, Bob, if they do get the green light and synthetic mice? What is the application, first of all, to the mice population around if they do get released? And then um, further down the track, if it is positive, how much further do you think it'll take for it to get into human gene, plant gene and hornless cattle? Well, they're all being researched in different um, sort of silos, you know, um, researchers in the medical and pharmaceutical area um, who are excited and interested in this technology as well, of course, are doing much different research from, uh, from the mouse research, although they would use rodents and other animals in their research, I'm sure. Yes. But um, and, and meanwhile, you... we've, got, we've got in the background CSIRO with $3.5 million dollars uh, to uh, do community research related to synthetic biology. Uh, what they're looking for is a social licence from the community to go ahead. And so there's going to be a lot of um, pushing and shoving about public acceptance. And, uh, uh, and, and also uh, information. I mean, I was just thinking too, I, I decided to look up the, the value of mice, you know, in the ecology. And uh, one of the things I did notice was um, that they're a food source for animals such as owls. So I was kind of imagining myself as an owl, you know, flying around, <laughs> looking down and thinking, where's my lunch? And looking at the mice. And um, I wouldn't know if I were that owl, whether that's a synthetically a synthetic mouse or a real mouse. And uh, so what effect would this have on... Um, on, you know, animals that might eat that mouse as well, I was wondering. Well, the first thing to say is that there are no ecologists on the regulators' advisory panel, so that's the first thing. They're not very interested or concerned about the environment. In fact, in their discussion document, it's not mentioned once. So, um, but the narrative from the researchers is, oh, if we do this on islands, first it's going to be secure, it's not going to get to the mainland and we aren't going to have to worry about your concerns. And secondly, it's going to be great because those mice and rats on, on islands are destructive. They do eat bird eggs um, uh, of birds that nest on the islands. They compete with other native critters, etc. And um, the 
this is going to be wonderful and, and a great idea. So this is how it's going to be sold to us. And yes. this is not the first time that that's been proposed, of mm. course. Yes. And um, there is a lot going on with rodenticides and other chemicals to try to eliminate um, rodents from islands as well. Um, I think one of the things that's absent... As an ecological uh, measure. Yeah, absent in a lot in the the, the conversation is around uh, the funding that's been taken away from environmental organisations and uh, environmental advocates. So that work that may have uh, been useful in dealing with some of these issues, uh, work that's not the, of the, you know, the... Um, gene nature, uh, genetic changes, uh, has not necessarily had the kind of funding it needs. So there's so, there's so much, and really the story was absolutely mind-boggling because there was so much to kind, kind of think about. And I guess the other thing I noticed was there seems to be now two groups of the so-called, and I'll just say conservationists emerging internationally. One group calling themselves the eco-modernists, who are made up mostly of um, the, of the people that are promoting the gene technologies. I gather not necessarily uh, people who are ecologists in the sense we think of it anyway. And then the traditional ecocentrists. So I mean, again, new words, new terms. And it seems that the eco-modernists are uh, active both internationally and nationally. So I mean, this is just one more thing to come to terms with in that article. Indeed, it is, because uh, that is a very hot debate and uh, uh, it is being fought out um, behind the scenes and meetings and so on around the world to say that um, people with um, training in um, genetic engineering um, and other aspects of new technologies, of course, are thinking, well, these technologies can save the environment. And they're coming into a scene where, as you said, traditional Ecologists like um, uh, with, with uh, environmental concerns are saying, "No, hang on a minute. You know, uh, technology is a major part of the problem. Like things like coal-fired power stations are the problem, not the solution. So this is why the debate goes about." Yes, and I understand, like people, clean, as you so-called said, so-called clean coal. Yeah, but as you said, people so like David the techno, Suzuki, the techno-optimists versus the traditionalists, I guess. Uh, yeah. But either way, uh, the world is sinking under our detritus, um, and uh, I think that uh, we just have to get serious about not inventing new technologies to cure the problems that our own technologies have created. Strong. And think about uh, <laughs> we are companions said. on this earth. Strongly said, Bob. We are, we are companions on this earth with other uh, with other organisms and. Uh, uh, let's just um, not think that we can get a techno fix and uh, do it safely by going out, out there on islands. Yes, thank, thank you, Bob, for um, coming on this morning and uh, clarifying really what is a pretty complex article and a complex issue and certainly something that we all really need to be aware of. So I really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Judith and, and Patty, for yes, and, uh, being uh, Yeah, great. And, and have a great rest of your day. That was Bob Phelps opening up the public discussion on gene ethics. <laughs> Something to stay tuned to. 3CR Wednesday breakfast is hot on the topic. Thanks to Judith. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. 
and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Three CR is where you're at. You can tune in threecr.org.au or get us on the AM dials at eight five five or listen back to our podcast, which we up today if all goes to plan. But right now we have a special guest who usually is on. We'd like to say a big good morning to Nick. <coughs> no, no, who was? That's my cough. <laughs> yes, and he's come in to to do the wrap up and yeah. also the, the podcast for yeah. this morning's it's show. It's mostly because I discovered even even when you're sick, even when you haven't slept much um, and you you think oh, I'll just you I'll just wait a little us. bit longer. Well, you look, listen I miss to us. you, you heard you us on the AM dial and I, you were I like was, I'm coming. I was listening in. along. That was very interesting on the uh, on the genetics and synthetic uh, and synthetic mice and it sort of does yeah. go into that that deeper issue of what are we doing with the technology around us and I'm actually chasing an interview I was hoping for this week didn't happen this week. Hopefully next well, week. Well, it's um, certainly a story to follow up on some of the some of the digital disruption going on in how our media and politics sort of come together. But yeah, you, you cannot sleep with toddlers and uh, babies. It's not possible. It's, uh, it's a battle against Always what life good is. To see you, Nick. <laughs> and you too. <laughs> um, and that brings us to the end of the show um, today. Thanks. Last thanks. day of summer. Yes, and big thanks to to our Jeez. guests and. I just going back to you know the Adani Adani did I say that right Nick <laughs> the Adani story but it's a global re- issue if a big coal plant's <laughs> going to come through here it doesn't matter how you say it uh, but anyway just I really want to thank all those lovely people who went who door knocking and spoke to me I mean they didn't really have to but they did so very kind to speak to me and to hear more about the Stop Adani campaign and the Batman election we heard a bit from Water and Wisdom Australia India from. Helen Raymond, it was great to get a listen in there. Get down to RMIT University if you can before March the 10th to have a look at the interactive artworks there. And we heard about sharks. We did. Thanks, Jane Williamson, for coming in, talking about fact sharks and distilling a bit of information amongst the public. And uh, Bob Phelps from Gene Ethics about uh, some projects that we're not hearing much about, but I think we will start to on the synthetic mice. Thanks for joining us here on Wednesday Breakfast. We'll be back next week. 